Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast. Today's conversation is entitled Differences Among Family Firms. What the Research Shows, featuring Dr. Francesco Barbera, Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship and Strategy at Toronto Metropolitan University, and is part of the Gen faculty teaching the course Evidence-Based Advising, Using Research to Empower Family Enterprises. So Dr. Barbera, let's get right to it. What does the research show? So family business is typically uh, kind of a young discipline. Uh, it's only been around for 30 years or so, and which is interesting, right? Because this is one of the oldest institutions on the planet, and yet we've only really just started studying them uh, in the last few decades. Like the development of any discipline and field, there are stages that occur, and the first stage is just sort of, in this case, is just sort of to establish the fact that uh, family firms are different. So the uniqueness of family businesses, and they are quite unique, and uh, we can get into that, but ultimately, those first rounds of inquiry were establishing the differences between whatever, quote-unquote, a family business is, uh, between the, them and, you know, whatever, a quote-unquote, a non-family business is. And a lot of those first early studies did a very good job at establishing that, yes, indeed, family businesses are different. Uh, but the problem uh, there is that, that a big assumption is made, and that assumption is that all family firms are the same, and all non-family firms are the same. Yes, we do need to study this. But of course, as the field progresses, that assumption of homogeneity within the groups is a pretty poor one, and you start to relax that, and you start to uh, go a little bit deeper now and ask, well, hold on a minute. In what ways are family businesses different? In what ways uh, are they different, not just in comparison to non-family firms, but in comparison to other family firms? Similar to ideas in strategy where you have, like in the strategy research, where you have um, an approach to that, that assumes all firms are the same, then they go off and they purchase, you know, resources and capabilities, or they purchase, you know, and they scan the environment, and then they, they just acquire competitive advantages, and these competitive advantages are what distinguishes them from other firms. But ultimately, all firms can have the ability to sort of go out and acquire these resources and capabilities, and they too can develop competitive advantages. But then, you know, the field progressed. You know, we have the Barney, or, you know, resource-based view approach, which is very much an internal an internal idea of what distinguishes firms from other or what creates competitive advantage. And we see that, hold on a minute, no, not everything can be purchased, right? There are inherent uh, resources and capabilities that do lead to competitive advantages. And in fact, all firms are unique. And so the opposite statement of all firms are the same is that all firms are unique. And of course, the reality, we know the reality of things is that all families are unique, all individuals are unique, and therefore all family businesses are unique. As a discipline, as a group of scholars who are studying this phenomena, are starting to ask, okay, well, and what what are the differences? Now we know, you know, these patterns across family, non-family, but what are the differences? It's important because it takes the field to the next level. Uh, it's important because it starts to allow us to go a little bit deeper into the nuances of what exactly are the unique challenges and opportunities that family businesses sort of face. It's not the same for all family businesses, but that said, we can go deeper and discover what those differences are. 
What are the implications for families and certainly family advisors if we continue to have a distorted, homogeneous view of family firms? There's a lot of of talk about best practices. Because there are some patterns and there are some similarities, and you can always bring abstract out to those patterns and similarities, then, of course, best practices can be developed. And these are things like, hey, you ought to uh, think about succession, right? You ought to develop a plan. Uh, By the way, typically family firms have a lot of emotion. uh, um, They're emotionally laden, and therefore you ought to be mindful of that. Uh, And uh, by the way, you know, family firms, you know, are... uh, uh, have this, this the next generation up and coming, and we need to develop, develop those people. And so those are all along. And, and another one is governance. We ought to develop structures that that um, kind of govern the ways in which the family kind of influences the business or affects the business. Uh, and this is all well and good, but the problem is when you have a kind of vanilla one. Uh, blanket approach, one solution to all problems, then, uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious that that becomes problematic. So, again, all families are unique, all family firms are unique, and so not there's not going to be one solution from an advisory perspective that uh, that is solving all the problems. I think it's it's the same idea. It's It's suffice to say that Yes, family firms are different, and yes, there are some key practices, what you might call best practices, that ought to be followed. But to um, not go any deeper than that, right, to blindly follow, say, a best practice without understanding the heterogeneity that does exist uh, can be very detrimental, obviously, because, yeah. uh, from an advisory perspective, because then we have advisors who are not necessarily delivering Uh, the best advice, and offering the best interventions. Dr. Barbera, share with us a bit about the theory of family science, how it applies to our discussion today, and how it's evolving. I myself, as as you know, I would call myself a researcher in this space. Um, You know, it's, and there is no, it's, there's no exhaustive list in terms of the ways in which family firms can be different. Right, but there's a but I can name a few, and um, and you know it starts with these ideas about why is it that family firms are different, and so one of the arguments in the literature is this idea of socio-emotional wealth, uh, and I'm sure your the audience will be familiar with this concept, but if I could just summarize really crudely, it's uh, essentially the effective value that uh, firms uh, that families sort of gain and they accumulate and they sort of, uh, and this benefit that they receive um, based on non-economic, you know, attributes. So the old economic uh, perspective of a business is simply that it's the purpose of that business is to maximize profit for its owners. Uh, But of course, in a family firm, and this doesn't, by the way, this is not just for family firms, but uh, it's, it was born, socio-emotional wealth was a concept that was born out of the family business literature. Um, in a family firm, uh, they don't just care only about profit. There are other, uh, you know, there are other factors that, that they want to, uh, that add value and they want to maximize. And those are non-economic. So things like their reputation, 
their control, which in and of itself gives them a sense of satisfaction, keeping it in the family. Their whole identity is wrapped up in this business. So their whole and the emotional, the emotions of others. So keeping everybody happy. Uh, and finally, the relationships that we've developed with customers and suppliers and so on in the community. These are non-economic, although they may lead to economic uh, consequences. Ultimately, they in and of themselves are values that want to be um, maximized and sometimes even to the detriment of economic value. So uh, you ask what, what, what's going on in the literature with respect to heterogeneity. So in the uh, old days, so to speak, it's not that old. I mean, maybe 10 years ago, uh, socio-emotional wealth came out as a big, big concept. And, uh, you know, it was just this assumption that family firms value or pursue socio-emotional wealth and non-family firms do not. But of course, when you understand that uh, the heterogeneity perspective, you think, well, hold on a minute. What aspects of socio-emotional wealth do different family firms pursue? Maybe uh, a fifth-generation family business is more interested in reputation and identity rather than control. Uh, maybe a first-generation family business is more interested in in keeping it in the family or uh, you know, the social ties that they've created, the social uh, capital that they've created in the community. So there's going to be variation uh, across family businesses in terms of what aspects of socio-emotional wealth do they uh, care about. There's also going to be, and if you go one step further, there's also going to be differences within each individual family in terms of uh, whether or not, or the extent to which they value socio-emotional wealth. So you may have a a patriarch who is extremely um, interested in reputation, and then you may have a next generation or a rising generation son or daughter who is more interested in identity. And so there's going to be even variation within the same family. But to date, or I shouldn't say to date because now the research is being done in these areas, but it's burgeoning and it's up and coming because up until more or less this point, we, there's been this assumption that, yes, socio-emotional wealth, yes or no, right? And then they've applied it to the entire family and the whole, and sometimes the whole group of family businesses. So that's one area that's being worked on. So the extent to which socio-emotional wealth is affecting, uh, I guess, behaviors and outcomes for family businesses. Uh, but there's all kinds of other uh, interesting uh, areas that are coming out, like, like, with respect to governance and the configuration of best practices around governance. Um, there's entrepreneurial orientation is another one. So these are all um, areas that, again, <clears throat> consider the fact that it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of explanation for these group of people, that even within the family group, it's consisting of individuals, and those individuals have you know, their own mind and heart and soul that, right. uh, you know, that, that are, you cannot say they're all the same. So the benefits of understanding the sources, types, and variances of heterogeneity among family firms can put the advisor in a better place and can really help the family socially and economically. Absolutely. I was always a proponent of, you know, there's this interesting idea, as I said, with socio-emotional wealth as an example, if we go down this path again, like, 
there's this argument that, well, sometimes non-economic objectives are pursued to the detriment of economic objectives. But if you factor in something like time, which they don't do very well at the moment, and it's but that's not to say that that uh, my colleagues are not you know looking into this and doing great work on this. But when you factor in time, it's like who's to say that something that you do now in terms of say protect your family name and therefore decide to remain a little smaller and not grow uh, that that wouldn't pay off later on when you consider. Um, the bigger picture, the temporal aspects of things. So, similarly, for a, for an advisor, right? It's it's looking at the bigger picture and understanding that kind of almost like when we talk about heterogeneity, we talk about, we can talk about levels. So there's the mic, the macro level, the meso level, and the micro level. And when you go down the rabbit hole of thinking about heterogeneity, then Really, you realize that no two things are the same ever. Even the same thing itself has changed across time. So even you yourself, Jordan, are not the same uh, Jordan than you were yesterday. And so there's heterogeneity even within you. And so once you understand the nature of that, I guess, phenomenon of change, right, the phenomenon of difference and change, then you realize that nothing stays the same and you must consider that fact, if you really, as an advisor, bringing it back to advisors, you must consider that fact if you really want to be the most effective advisor you can be. Dr. Barbera, they say the only thing constant in life is change, and you and your colleagues seem pretty energized keeping up with these changes and sharing it with the rest of us. Because here's the thing, this is about the 501 course, right, that we recently revamped. And I was, I've been uh, teaching this course for more than 10 years now, so I've seen the different iterations of the course. And most definitely, this version is the kind of uh, best version so far. But in the spirit of change, right, we're, like, it will continue to improve. Um, and I do get that feedback that uh, the advisors are thinking, wow, this is actually, um, you know, much deeper and more insightful than... You know, then, then, uh, not to compare it to the previous version, but just this is much a, a much deeper and more insightful way to think about families and business and business families. You know, again, it's that's what makes family business so cool, right? Family business is about is that intersection between the economic, business, technical world with the human, relational, emotional world. And so automatically that creates a very interesting scenario and a very interesting area of study. And then when you factor in this stuff that we've been talking about today, now all of a sudden it's like, wow, how nuanced is this? It's almost a little bit overwhelming too, right? As I said in the beginning, you do need an initial starting point to say, hold on, family firms are different. And so you do need some assumptions to say to say there are some patterns that family firms kind of all exhibit, right? But beyond that sort of anchoring, we can really explore now. We, like we are at a time in the research world and therefore when we, you know, I love the FFI because they're so good at, uh, at translating and connecting the researchers with, uh, with the practitioners. Uh, it's such an interesting time for practitioners now to really uh, accept this, embrace it, 
and as I said before, to you know, just essentially thrive as an advisor. Thank you to Dr. Francesco Barbera for this conversation. Listeners interested in learning more about this topic or enrolling in the GEN certificate programs should visit ffigen.org. That's ffigen.org. And for more information on FFI Practitioner, go to ffipractitioner.org. I'm Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening.